Thank you, Jess. Technically, it's not May yet, so I don't have to be, the bar's a little lower for me. I don't have to quite get there. Um, I usually come to morning service, although I'd been out dealing with some health issues, so it's just very great to be in this space, to see everyone, and to be able to share this time with you. Um, just a word of warning, I don't think there's any kids in here, but this is not a children's Bible story. It is a Bible story, I promise, but it's not a children's one, so just a word of warning. Um, if you could turn to your in your Bibles or your smartphones or your apps, thank you, to Hosea chapter 1. I didn't make slides. Um, I'm getting closer, Kevin. I, I'm learning how to incorporate them. This time in my notes, there's like notes that says, put slide here. So next time I think they'll actually make it in. Okay, so Hosea chapter 1, starting with verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaine, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhumah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Let's pray. Lord, may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my lips be acceptable unto you, my rock and my redeemer. May we be blessed even as we wrestle with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've heard it said that people may doubt what you say, but they'll always believe what you do. It's the whole idea of practicing what you preach. Actions speaking louder than words. Don't talk about it. Be about it. We all understand the sentiment. There's a difference between saying something and actually doing it between talking and actually taking action. Educators have long appreciated the benefits of learning by doing and teaching by showing. And we see it in scripture. In the book of James, chapter two and verse 14, we hear faith without works is dead. For if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? Actions speak louder than words. As we continue going through this year of biblical literacy, this week we find ourselves again in the Old Testament prophets. Now, by way of background and what may be review of for some and new for others, the term prophet can be quite confusing. Some think of a prophet as kind of a fortune teller or someone predicting the future. Others may think of someone who addresses social concerns. For example, Martin Luther King invoked the prophets often in his sermons and writings, most famously in I Have a Dream, 
when he quoted the prophet Amos, saying, no, we're not satisfied and will not be satisfied until Amos 5.24, justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Today, when I use the term prophet, I'm using it as one would understand it in the ancient Near East, simply as one who speaks on behalf of gods or goddesses. Now, I talk about plural gods and goddesses because the use of prophets was not unique to ancient Israel. Various religions and cultures had them. But during Old Testament times in ancient Israel, the kings of Israel and Judah sought to know God's will, and they would consult prophets. One thing to remember that's very important when reading the prophets is that they address specific concerns at a specific time in concrete terms. Therefore, it can be a bit dangerous to just interpret these books apart from their historical context. Prophets, they worked within the conventions of their society. They were very much immersed in the life of their time. And they not only used words to address situations, but also prophetic action, nonverbal communication that was intended to give a message. Because, as we've all heard before, actions speak louder than words. Now, when Kevin asked me to preach from one of the prophets, um, putting the Amos issue aside, um, <laughs> there were lots of choices. I immediately thought of Hosea, though I later tried to run from it. It seems like it's not a great sign when you look to Bible commentary, and the first line is, I wish this story had never been written. Many believe that Hosea was the first Old Testament prophet. Scholars have re referred to Hosea as one of the most unintelligible books in the Bible, and for that reason, there's been much difficulty in interpreting it. More than that, the text presents some difficult issues that the modern reader must grapple with. Sure, there are more palatable prophetic texts, but as I sat down to write my sermon, I kept returning to Hosea. I thought the better of it because where else but here can we go to have conversations about potentially troubling texts? How do we learn to honor the biblical text while speaking against its use as a tool to oppress and enslave. I truly believe that wrestling with these difficult texts honors God, and so here I put my money where my mouth is, switched gears, and here we are talking about Hosea. Hosea, like many Old Testament prophets, was a good example of God teaching his people through a little bit of show and tell, when God would use this prophetic action to speak to the people of Israel. In the book of Hosea, the message to the Israelites is largely delivered through the relationship between Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Now, if you've never heard of Gomer or can't recall her story, you are in good company. Generally speaking, the voices of women in the Bible are often few and far between, but there's some that we hear about with quite a bit of frequency. Gomer is not one of them. Just to set the scene, Hosea was an 8th century prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. He lived during a time of great political turmoil and unrest, and not only political turmoil, but moral and religious decline. The Israelites, who God had delivered out of slavery and taken into a promised land, were now worshiping other gods alongside their god, Yahweh. The Israelites who had been commanded back on Mount Sinai to have no other gods besides Yahweh were bowing before foreign gods. Specifically, they were worshiping the Canaanite god Baal. 
See, the, the land that they occupied, it was a dry land. It was an arid land. And people depended on agriculture for their livelihood. The Canaanite god Baal was thought to be responsible for making it rain. Worshiping Baal, though, was in direct conflict with their promise to have no other gods besides Yahweh. So even though the Israelites knew that Yahweh was God, it seems some of them thought that a plan B was in order. And in retrospect, it's very easy to be critical of the Israelites. After all, they believed in God and made this promise. God had showed and proved God's self-faithful, bringing them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. However, surely there are times when we who believe God also want to hedge our bets in order to get ahead. When we bow down to gods of money and greed, worldly ideas of success and prestige. So, like many of us often do, the Israelites decided they too needed a plan B, and many of them joined in the worship of Baal. Men would participate in a ritual in which they would frequent temple prostitutes in an effort to bring fertility across the land. And it's against this backdrop that we begin Hosea. To be clear, Baal worship presented not only a spiritual or theological dilemma, but a social justice issue. With all the focus on agriculture and fertility, fields that people once used to live off of were taken, used for luxury consumption, excess, and as shrines for Baal worship. Hosea was sent to bring a clear message to the people. You have been unfaithful and must turn back to God. But in the first chapter, we immediately learned that this message would not be one that Hosea would simply proclaim in words. Rather than tell them, Hosea sets out to show them. The book of Hosea, chapter 1 and verse 2, reads, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now I want to pause right here because there's been some dispute as to who Gomer was based on ambiguity in the text. Some say Gomer was one of the cultic prostitutes that Israel had become so fond of. Others say she wasn't a prostitute at all, but an adulterous or promiscuous woman. But the bottom line is that Hosea was to marry a woman of ill repute a woman who he knew would bring shame upon him, a woman who would be unfaithful to prove a point to the people of Israel. And I've got to pause again, because the marriage metaphor itself has not been without its own issues. Parts of the book of Hosea refer to humiliating Gomer, engaging in behavior that would amount to abuse of her and her children. Some scholars think that this relationship was more allegory than biographical. But either way, it must be read and interpreted with great caution. It's important to point out that this story is in this context of this ancient patriarchal society. Women were excluded from the public sphere, and Hosea understood his audience to be all male. Men controlled every aspect of a woman's life, including her sexuality. Whereas a woman could be humiliated and stoned for committing adultery, a man was free to visit prostitutes and have extramarital affairs as long as he didn't do so with a married woman. So this metaphor where the husband is God and Israel the unfaithful woman who would bring shame and dishonor upon her husband would have been readily embraced by Hosea's audience. Returning to the biblical text, the prophetic actions continued. 
after Hosea had his first son, in verse 4, the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Jezreel had become known for the bloody coup that was staged there and was emblematic of bloodshed. We can imagine this being synonymous to naming your child genocide, a constant reminder to those around them of the atrocities that had taken place. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore our daughter. And then the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhama, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. And the message didn't end there. Gomer had the third child. Verse 9, the Lord says, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. If actions speak louder than words, then there must have been quite the sound every day as Hosea's family walked around as a walking, talking, living, breathing reminder of all the problems in Israel. And still, Israel didn't hear the message. In the final chapter of Hosea, chapter 14, we hear a plea to Israel, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take your words with you and return to the Lord. So after all the show and tell through his actions, Hosea is still having to make pleas to Israel to turn back to God. After Hosea marries Gomer to deliver a message to the people, after Gomer's children serve as walking, talking billboards of everything wrong in the nation, after Gomer leaves her husband and cheats on him, after Gomer falls on hard times and becomes enslaved, and after Hosea obeys God and takes her back despite her faithlessness, it appears that the people of Israel, by and large, still missed the message. And in reading this text, I wondered, how often do I, too, miss the message? In my human frailty, God shows me, tells me, and still, I miss the message. And I believe that this text illuminates for us four specific ways that we can continue to miss the message if we're not careful. The first... We miss the message if we miss the metaphor. I can only imagine what people had to say after seeing Hosea, God's chosen prophet. Hosea, who was constantly telling them what they were doing wrong, proclaiming messages of judgment, when they saw him marry a woman who would bring great shame. It must have been quite the scandal when Gomer, married to Hosea, had two children whose father was unknown. It was the talk of the town when Gomer left Hosea in pursuit of other lovers. And when Gomer, married to the prophet, falls into slavery, perhaps by owing a debt or committing a crime, and, go, and Hosea goes back to get her, certainly fingers were pointing. And while we're pointing fingers, we often don't see ourselves in the ones we malign. We don't see that in Hosea's metaphor, Gomer was meant to represent us, not in spite of, but because of her flaws and faithlessness. Perhaps we want to see ourselves as Hosea, a spokesperson of the Lord. I'd like to think of myself as one of the Israelites who was not mentioned, who remained faithful to God while those around them became faithless. But lo, I am Gomer. Hosea could no more adequately describe God than we can today. He used comparisons, analogies. This one would have resonated strongly with his male audience, understanding the dishonor that Gomer would have brought upon Hosea, it was shocking that he would take her back. The metaphor was meant to describe to them God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, and God's relentless pursuit of them. 
Hosea invokes this image of Gomer, or um, rather of Israel as the unfaithful wife, not because it's an enlightened view of gender dynamics or is instructive for marriages today, but because it rang true with the audience to which he preached. And if we miss this use of the metaphor, I'm sorry, if we miss this use of the message, other way around, if we, too many M's, if we miss this use of the metaphor, we miss the message, exactly. (laughs) Second, we often miss the message because we don't like the messenger. Just as Hosea's life became a sign act, a show and tell, if you will, Gomer's life was a message too. And it is so easy to miss the message when you write off the messenger. Because sometimes God speaks to and through the most unlikely vessels. And I believe that God is still speaking through Gomer today. Sometimes the only thing we know about someone is the worst thing that they have done or the way that someone else decides to characterize them. In a day when Israelite men were openly frequenting temple prostitutes, it hardly seems fair that one of the few things we know about Gomer is that she had been labeled as promiscuous. We never hear from Gomer, so we don't know her side of the story. The feminist, the womanist, the biblical student in me wants so badly to know more about Gomer. What's her story? Did she deserve the bad rap she was getting? If so, what was driving her, motivating her? Why was she looking for love in all the wrong places? But all we know about her is her adulterous ways, which could lead us to believe that she was nothing more. But we know that one who tells a lie must be more than a liar, one who kills more than a killer, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And we know that we're instructed to judge not, and we will not be judged. When we reduce people to these labels, when we get in the dangerous business of deciding who's unclean and who's unworthy, we run the risk of missing the message from the very messengers God has chosen. A third way that we might miss the message is when we make this mistake of thinking the message is not for us. As I said, Gomer's children represented all that was wrong in the nation. But if you thought the message was just for Gomer and Hosea, then you missed it. Although the children lived with Gomer and Hosea, their names were messages not only for their household, but for all of Israel. And throughout the Bible, we know that names have great significance. In Genesis, Esau's twin was born gripping the heel of his brother and was named Jacob, meaning he takes by the heel. In Exodus, when Pharaoh's daughter draws a baby out of the water, she names him Moses, meaning the one who draws out. And of course, Mary names her own baby Jesus, a name literally meaning the Lord saves. Similarly, in Hosea, the names of the three children carried the Lord's message to the Israelites. The names of the children signaled to them the devastating consequences, not simply punishment, but a foreseeable consequence of their collective actions. In other words, all one had to do was to pay attention to Hosea and Gomer's children to see where the nation went wrong. And it makes me wonder, what messages will we hear if we take a moment to really pay attention to the children among us today? What messages might we be missing if we ignore that in this country alone, every 21 seconds, a child is arrested. Every 34 seconds, a baby is born into poverty. Every three hours, a child or teen is killed by a firearm. 
Every five hours, a child or teen commits suicide, and just as often, a child or teen is killed by abuse or neglect. Although the U.S. ranks number one in the number of billionaires out of industrialized nations, it ranks second to worst in child poverty rates. Although it ranks first in military spending and in rates of incarceration, it has proven to be the worst in protecting children from gun violence. And if our response is that we're good people, we're not responsible, they're not our children, I'm afraid that we too have missed the message. Now sometimes the situation before us seems hopeless. After all, the children have already been named. The situation is what the situation is. But you have to read to the end of the story. Otherwise, we risk missing the message because we stop listening halfway through. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, God promises to his faithless people, yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can neither be measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. If you put the book down too early, you miss that God instructs Hosea to love Gomer, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to other gods. If we miss this message, we may think the story ends with judgment on an unfaithful nation rather than grace and redemption, that restoration is, in fact, possible. If we stop reading halfway through, we don't find out that the children's names are changed. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we equally miss the message when we decide that God is done speaking. When we as a church use a metaphor from thousands of years ago to say that God sanctions certain cultural or historical norms. When we use this or any biblical text to justify abuse or oppression or to marginalize. When we deny or ignore these difficult texts instead of addressing them and learning from them. Because we know that the story of God's love for us continues far past the story of Hosea and Gomer. We see it in the life of Jesus in Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. We see it today as we are gifted with God's grace, a God who relentlessly pursues us, who loves us beyond what any metaphor can convey. And that is a message that we don't want to miss. Amen. Amen. <laughs>